0: But as the world shifts and it becomes more of a talent conversation it becomes more three-dimensional and therefore you're seeing more founders and leaders recognize this and understand that they have to do some personal work in addition to working on the business
1: welcome to the authentically successful show i'm carol schultz founder and ceo of vertical elevation a talent equity and leadership coaching and advisory firm We partner with founders and CEOs to create talent-centric organizations, either where they don't currently exist or rebuild companies into talent-centric organizations. We are committed to supporting your vision and values by creating healthy, successful companies, leveraging the best talent, retention, development, and succession strategies. Listen at the end of the show for information about becoming my next guest on one of the most important podcasts for building thriving companies. Here we go. Joining me today is Matt Burns, founder and CEO of Bento HR, an HR operations consulting firm working at the intersection of strategy, technology and people operations to accelerate value creation, partnering with organizations, private equity and venture capital firms to identify high leverage initiatives that lead to immediate and sustained results. Matt is the host of his own podcast, Thinking Inside the Box, where he interviews innovative leaders and discusses complex issues related to work and culture. I can say I was privileged to be on Matt's podcast. Matt, welcome to my show. It's great to have you.
0: I'm excited to not have to ask questions for a while. This is fantastic.
1: (laughs) Well, I feel like, you know, although we are sort of in adjacent industries we are in many ways um kindred spirits
0: complimentary for sure uh, it's the full life cycle of the human experience and work
1: right so what how would you define um the biggest problem that you're solving for your clients
0: well, this is why it's complimentary carol it, it's but people a lot of organizations going into the pand- pandemic didn't have any aspirations to look at hybrid work or remote work. That was not right. on the dance card for most organizations. Here living we are Living in a blind spot. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah. here we are with many organizations having made the change through muscle and out of necessity and through brute force. And now they're waking to the reality that the programs they put in place and the technologies that they spent money on and the policies that they created may not actually make sense in perpetuity. It worked for this uh, indefinite period of time of crisis, but now that we're in this new stasis where hybrid work seems to have some traction in most workplaces, we could argue in different geographies and different industries, but largely speaking, there are more people who will work in a hybrid capacity in 2023 than there were in 2019, and that trend will continue into the future. It's figuring out how to make that work at its highest capacity, which means the the fir- the organization, the firm has to have success and the employees have to have success. And trying to find that balance is a challenge for most leaders. Now, where they interact with us, where they come to us more often is, is HR operations. It's right. they've bought the technologies, they've got the data, they've got the strategy, but they don't all link together. So mm-hmm. they bought systems in a vacuum. They have data they don't know what they're doing with. We help them make sense of that. And ultimately, maximize their investments going into the future, so they can be more efficient, so they can realize better results financially, and so that their employees can have a better experience when they're there.
1: Tell me a little bit, and, and you are you're privately held. You've bootstrapped the company, yeah. Um, and and you know you you like you know m- myself are selling you know your consulting organization. You're selling services, and and you know uh, venture capitalists aren't aren't you know throwing money at consulting firms, <laughs> yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about your journey to founding Bento HR and, you know, where you've seen, you know, some of your challenges from, from a bootstrapping
0: standpoint. Yeah, it's a good question. And it's something that I didn't really fully understand. And I don't know how you could, when you make the transition from the corporate world into your own business. I mean, Carol, like a lot of people. I had had success in the corporate world, so I had done well for myself, I'd been promoted, I'd taken on multiple challenges in multiple organizations, and built up a pretty good reputation in a corporate setting, and thought that largely that would translate into entrepreneurship. I mean, Carol, I even thought without the, the constraints of bureaucracy, I might be able to accelerate my, my growth through that, and my ego was really building during that transition, <laughs> as it yeah. does. And then the reality <laughs> right. of entrepreneurship sets in, you go, hey, the skills yeah. that I actually developed in the corporate world, don't yeah. necessarily translate one-to-one to the entrepreneurship world. Mm-hmm. And in Carol, right. I was an HR executive for many years. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I spent time working with CEOs, with C-suite mm-hmm. leaders, with boards of directors, helping them develop right. their talent strategies, helping them restructure their companies, acquire mm-hmm. new organizations, mm-hmm. digitize at scale. Mm-hmm. I built a really extensive and valuable toolbox when it came to influence. right? But I didn't know how to sell anything. And when yeah. you're an entrepreneur, that is entrepreneurship 101, is you never actually stop selling. But in my head mm-hmm. at the time, I had a, a, quite a negative connotation about what selling was. So I had to mm-hmm. do some personal work around my values, in addition to building out my toolbox to be able to ultimately yeah. engage with people that might want to buy our services, provide some answers to questions they might have. And mm-hmm. then ultimately build relationships in service to ultimately creating a business.
1: Yeah, that's really great. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned influence, and I know this is a conversation that you and I have had in the past. Uh, yeah. So I want to just sort of jump on that for a minute. What, you know, you said to me, um, you know, HR has influence and no power. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Let's, let's get into that in detail, what you mean by that. Because I know you and I are, again, completely along the same uh, line, feel the same way about that.
0: So when I say power, I mean the ability to actually move the financial agenda forward in the organization. Yeah. Because the reality is most businesses, if they're for profit, if they're publicly traded, if they're privately held, if they're not for profit, they need to represent their business in some financial manner. Now, if you're a for profit business, in most cases, you're trying to maximize your profitability. And if you're a not for profit, you're trying to control your costs to, Mm -hmm. to divert as much of the funds as possible to the cause that you support. Either right. way, there's a financial responsibility that exists in every organization. Traditionally, HR is not part of those conversations. They're the mm-hmm. conversation that happens after that decision's been made, and they're left to reconcile the reality that's been created when they weren't in the room. So what I mean by that is let's just say mm-hmm. we're an organization X today, and we had a lot mm-hmm. of success up to and including the pandemic, but now we start to see some financial headwinds coming. There's a recession on the on the brink, there's inflationary pressures. We are looking at our, our, you know, our balance sheet, our p and statement for next year and going, oh, I don't feel as good as I did this time last year. So it, as a consequence, I say things like, let's, let's hire freeze. Let's, let's let's put the pause on all vacancies and hold back that cost. Let's actually cut some resources in what we roles we think we can automate or make more redundant by combining two jobs into one, reducing the scope, things of that nature. These discussions are happening in every organization, not every, in a lot of organizations now, as we mm-hmm. think about going into a recessionary period of time. right? The challenge with that is it's a short-term decision that's made to yes. address a short-term problem. Correct. And after that decision is made, you as an organization have to move forward and right. you have to do so with the understanding that if you continue to operate in this historical manner, you are not able to build trust with your employees such mm-hmm. that they'll do anything more than what is absolutely required to keep their jobs. Right. right. That's just human instinct. If you mm-hmm. are... At the whim of somebody making a decision on a golf course or in a boardroom or Mm -hmm. on a Zoom call that you could lose your job by no means because of your merit, but because of broader economic situations or a company's decision to be conservative in a downturning economy, Mm -hmm. you start to lose faith with the organization and you start to diversify your interests. And that might mean getting a side hustle, might mean launching a Mm -hmm. podcast, it might mean looking Mm -hmm. for another job. It might mean all three. But at a time when organizations are clamoring for employees to be more loyal, to stick around, to yeah, show up and That ain't, that ain't and the contribute. most
1: effective strategy. <laughs> it's not the most
0: effective strategy. But it, it, yeah. but it has to shift because the other thing, Carol, mm-hmm. comes into play, and this is where we talk about HR having no power, ha- no power but influence. Part of the problem rests with HR. Like, we're yes. part of the problem. And why I say that is when we have these conversations, one, this is a tough conversation to have because you're going to get a lot of pushback from CFOs and CEOs on this conversation because they're going to require you to bring data and they're going to require you to have a conversation on their terms, which is a financial agenda. When we pull back all the layers, this does come back to dollars and cents. So Mm -hmm. the conversation I want to have is the demographics of the workforce are changing. There are more Bay Boomers who are leaving the workforce every single day than there are Millennials and Gen. Exactly. More people left or or left and did part time assignments or now Mm -hmm. doing side hustles, but the total available workforce is shrinking. And there's a major misalignment between the skills that are needed in the new way of working and the skills that are currently provided and available now in the market. Mm -hmm. All that being said, it's going to get harder and harder to find people it would be incumbent upon you as a business that operates with people being part of it, that you'd want to operate in a way that allows you to attract good people and then keep them. Because if you can't, you're going to be fighting a losing battle and fighting uphill for the remainder of your time in the organization, because the talent pool through purely demographics will continue to shrink for the next 15 years. this is not a conversation about like changing your corporate values or Mm -hmm. what's the right thing to do. Those things, by the way, are completely valid. This is a business conversation and leaders need to wake up to the reality that treating your people well is really good business.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, and it's interesting. I I mean, I had this conversation with um, a business partner of mine, gosh, over 20 years ago when she said, you know, companies are going to get a major slap in the face because those baby boomers are all going to retire and they're not going to have anybody to replace them. Sure. Sure. And, you know, we live in such a reactive world that, you know, everybody's just sort of, you know, as they, as they kick the can down the road, but we'll worry about when it happens. Well, now it's happened and look at the mess that, you know, people are in. Yeah.
0: And it, it, the sad thing is it's predictable.
1: Yes. Well, that's the whole point. It was, pre- I mean, we, it was over 20 years ago we had this conversation and, you know, here we are 20, over 20 years later, have ha- having it come to fruition as we predicted it would and nobody was doing any work to prevent this from happening.
0: Well, oh, it's because the wheels of bureaucracy move slower than the wheels of progress. And that's just, right. when you look at, you know, some of the culprits you could point to, Carol, and we, I think we could line them up on, in a line and say higher education, we could say government, we could say, yeah. in a lot of cases, the corporate structures and a lot of Fortune mm-hmm. 1000 mm-hmm. companies. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, you know, people, key actors who have per- let us down in a proverbial sense. And to their credit, the incentives that were in place, that are in place, didn't nudge them towards doing the right thing. So in, right. in some ways, I can't really blame them because if you're collecting big bonus checks by hitting quarterly earning statements, mm-hmm. why do you want to think about the long term? If you're mm-hmm. truly that kind of person and you get to that level of position, in my experience, a large number of them are, are quite self-centered because you need mm-hmm. to be to get to that level of um, ascension in a corporate structure, for example, or a government structure mm-hmm to have the thick enough skin to be able to work your way to the top of that pile requires right. a degree of selfishness and sociopathy that is just, unfortunately, you're going to find a lot of that the farther away you work up the ladder. Um, mm-hmm. And we need to accept that, but we also need to think about what how do we help incent individuals like that, that are very achievement-oriented, that are very self-achievement-oriented, to mm-hmm. do the right thing. Because Mm -hmm. they have the innovation and the motivation and the drive and the passion to be able to do incredible things. So without the incentives to actually pull those levers, we're going to be here five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, having the same conversation.
1: Right. Exactly. Tell me a little bit about the genesis
0: of Bento HR, Matt. Yeah. I mean, we can go far back as my time in Brazil, but I'll skip ahead to Seattle. I, I was lucky enough to meet a gentleman, Kareem, who's become my co-founder at a conference actually in Vancouver originally. And we talked mm-hmm. about our view of the HR profession and how, like you and I, Carol, believe that it was mm-hmm. in time for a revamp, that yeah. we could see the the business case for digitization, for data and analytics, for immersive technology, to really drive Benefits throughout the organization, but benefits mm-hmm. that could be realized both financially and to the, the employees' benefit. Mm-hmm. And that was where we wanted to change the narrative from a traditional conversation of either have to do right by your employees and spend money or wrong them and save money. Well, in this new yeah. world, you get a chance to do both simultaneously. You actually can make a better working conditions for your employees while looking after them and actually making more money. But mm-hmm. it requires a bit more innovation, it requires Correct. a greater amount of courage to move through that change. Mm -hmm. And it requires the right partners to help guide you from where you are to where you Mm want to go. Because the reality is before the pandemic, 80% of digital transformations, according to, and I believe it was Deloitte, failed. Failed to hit the objectives of the transformation that were set out. 80%, wow. Now we look at going forward, Mm -hmm. I'm guessing the constraints that we're operating in are more difficult in most organizations now. I'm guessing the success rate hasn't skyrocketed. I'm thinking it's probably the same, if not worse. So our genesis was we can help solve for that. And both my partner and I, Kareem, are are motivated by, yes, having business success, but we know that we can affect and make more people's lives positive because when we were able to help organizations operate more effectively, there's a ripple effect to their employees. And the genesis was, how do we use our best skills to be able to impact the most amount of positive change? And -hmm. that was kind of the evolution of Bento HR, which was born in in actually a sushi restaurant in Ballard, Washington. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's fantastic. So what would you say are the biggest challenges that you're facing in your organization? And are they the same challenges that your industry is facing?
0: Yeah, I think it's a good question. I I think the challenge that we're facing most is really just being agile enough to find the opportunities in the market. We set out on this path four years ago with a very different vision Mm -hmm. than where we are today, which Mm -hmm. is a common story for entrepreneurs. But at the time we were pretty solid in our thinking and our idea had a lot of proof and a lot of case studies to illustrate there was Mm -hmm. value there, but we had to Mm -hmm. pivot multiple times as a course of the pandemic and learnings that we achieved and clients we worked with and clients we turned down and got to a place where we think we found two really interesting bodies of work that make sense, that align with our skills. We like the work. We like the client Mm -hmm. profile. We think we can add lots of value and we're delivering um, really interesting progress for the client in the manner in Mm -hmm. which we wanted to achieve when we first set out. Um, So I think the hardest part for us has been trying to find that because I'll be honest, at the first it was hard to find customers and then it was hard to find the right customers Mm -hmm. and then it was hard to figure out where we want to show up and where we could add the most amount of value. And that's mm-hmm. the evolution of our business to a place now where I think it's, it's getting much more solid. And as a consequence, the business is growing much faster because yeah. we're able to realize much, much greater alignment to our clients. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. That's terrific. How are, how are you finding your prospects? Or are they finding you? Is it a combination of inbound, outbound, referrals? What does it look like?
0: It's it. As much as the world changes, it stays kind of the same. It's, it's word of mouth referral. In almost yeah. every case, uh, we're working with clients on very large ticket projects. So okay. we're, you know, we're working on you know, our, our, usually our minimum scope of work is in the six figures and it goes up from there because we're doing large scale digital transformations involving in some cases, millions of data points, bringing together, harmonizing and bringing complex mm-hmm. systems in financial services and healthcare and public service kind Got of into it. one, one bucket. Right. To to be able to convince somebody that it's a good idea to cut you a check for that size of money, they have to really trust you and they have to really yes, want to work with you for a long mm-hmm. period of time because it's not, right. even if it's not their money and it's a corporate contact, it's their reputation, which might be more mm-hmm. important than their money. Mm-hmm. And we take that really seriously. So for us, we've built a reputation with the clients we've worked with and with our partners and they've been kind enough to be able to make introductions where those make sense and that's been able to sustain our business and and through some pretty challenging times during the pandemic. Um, Mm -hmm. at the same time, um, you know, I try as best I can. As you know, Carol, it's hard to find time to, to write or to go on podcasts. So where I have an opportunity like this to speak with somebody that I enjoy talking to, it's like two birds with one stone. But we do mm-hmm. try and do some podcast efforts. We do try and um, you know put out some articles every now and again. We're gonna do more of that in 2023. But I would say 90% of our business has come from word of mouth referral and relationships. And yeah. I don't know if that's gonna change anytime soon. Mm-hmm.
1: How, how long does a typical
0: engagement take for you? Short as a month, as long as we've had a client for well over 10 years. So, and we, you know, in that case, it's a long-standing relationship. And even though the the players might change, the relationship with the organization only solidifies over time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Usually, you know, I would say most engagements are three to six months. Yeah. Um, And usually from our sales cycle is between six and 18 months.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's, nobody's buying services in, you know, 30 seconds or less.
0: No, nor, should, mean, they. It, mean, again, it, nor should they. I mean, again, there's a trust component there that needs That's to be at right. play. And the fact that we take it so seriously actually endears us to our clients in that regard.
1: Yeah, I, I, I can, can complete agreement with that. So why is, you know, this, this business that you're in, why is it such a problem?
0: That's what we're talking about. The the challenges of harmonizing your technology, your data with your business strategy, and also supporting your employees. That's a lot of plates that you're spinning at once. Mm -hmm. And most professionals can do one of them really well. Your CFO is going to make sure that you have your strategic finance in place and your accounting is rock solid. Your Mm -hmm. CHRO will have your talent strategy wire. Your CMO will work with your CRO to make sure you have a pipeline and that you've got good mm-hmm. awareness and you're closing deals. And your operator mm-hmm. will help you make sure it all comes together. Mm-hmm. But the finding someone that actually can look at the entire breadth of the organization and yeah. help each of those individual groups tie it all together and help them on their journeys to becoming leaders in mm-hmm. digital businesses is a very unique skill set. And mm-hmm. generally speaking, it's there's a few people in our market that do it really, really well. They're most of the big yeah. consulting firms where we try and differentiate ourselves is through agility, through Mm -hmm. practical application. Um, And our business model isn't predicated on bringing in underqualified people to do complex projects. Mm -hmm. You know, I work the engagements in most cases myself or working with someone else. Um, We are all hands-on the organization in terms of supporting our client needs. It's not being kicked Mm -hmm. down to somebody who's on a three-month, you know, job contract. Like we're, but we're but we're billing the client $500 an hour, like it's not that kind of business. We really want to um, drive a long-term relationship and that comes with yeah. being present, being visible and having real impact and also being accountable for what happens. So we, we pride ourselves on having strong data that we establish upfront during the engagement and then we trace the data through the length of the engagement to show the Got impact it. that we're having. Clients appreciate the accountability that comes along with that.
1: Yeah, very interesting. What do you see your clients... When they come to you, what do they think their problem is? And is it actually the problem that you think it is?
0: That's a great question. That's a very, very good question. Uh, It's very rarely the problem they think it is. Um, And in most (laughs) cases, they know that. They just want to have somebody to talk about. So I would say it's not uncommon for us to be introduced to the broader C-suite from one department, whether it's HR, whether it's CTO, CFO, they have a, a... a functional specific agenda of some sort. And they need their stakeholders, their key stakeholders, their colleagues mm-hmm. to buy in to drive the project forward because everything we do involves usually the breadth of the organization. So it requires buy-ins from all those C-suite executives. How we yeah. position that really is in a way that such that we try and meet the need of the, all parties, but we also want to be fair and transparent about where we think our limitations might exist. So. This is why the data piece for us is really, really important. We we seek to establish where are all the pain points. We seek to establish some degree of common belief around where the direction is mm-hmm. that we're going. Mm-hmm. And then we help fill in the details of how to get there. And generally speaking, where we start is we need your help with a technology project. And I generally spend more than half my time with change management. Yeah.
1: What is the issue, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, HR and influence versus power. Um, And, you know, often HR is not even in the room when decisions are being made.
0: What is the problem with that, with human resources? Problem, what's the problem in terms of why they're not being introduced to those rooms? Yeah,
1: I mean, you know, I have my own, my own comments about that, but I'm more interested in hearing yours. Like, what's the problem with human resources? Why are there so many
0: bad HR people? yeah I think so I would say it's a bit of supply and demand to use an economic term, yeah, so the first mm-hmm. thing is if we look at the let's look at the demand side of the curve. it's more fun. What most organizations want from their h r leaders is not what you just said. Right. They want someone to write policies to keep yeah, them out of right. the courts and out of the newspaper. they want right, essentially go- all the governmental
1: a governmental they want
0: a governmental yeah. so they want a, they want a sheriff to walk around and make sure everyone's got the, you know the dress code managed properly, yeah. Unfortunately, that is still a large percentage of companies, and that's not yeah. changed in a post-pandemic world. It's not right. everybody, and it's certainly small, smaller in mm-hmm. size than it mm-hmm. once was, but mm-hmm. there is an expectation of we don't want HR to be a strategic part of the business. I'll give right. you an example, and I won't mention the company's name because it's not yeah. fair, but when I worked Obviously. with an organization previously, I actually built mm-hmm. a business case to turn HR into a profit center. That is, I would generate revenue in greater amounts than the cost of my function. And the deal I wanted to make was, if I could generate revenues in excess of my costs, that I wanted to keep 50% to further invest into the, the function and sure. build a truly next-level HR department. But the, right. the remaining 50% could go to the bottom line. Yep. And I rolled out a business case. I built a business case that was predicated on a couple of areas that would be close to your heart, Carol. One of the areas was we were we got really good at finding and acquiring developer talent. I I couldn't tell you mm. why. It was one of those like we just found this fissure in the matrix where it just all seemed yeah. to line up. And wow. we had an abundance of qualified talent at a time when people were screaming for developers. <laughs> right, right. I began placing developers that I had interviewed in my organization but didn't have spots for into my friend's <laughs> organization. So they had and I took a fee for it. Yeah, of course you did. I mean, what, you're not stupid. <laughs> and I was able to figure out how to make that work from the accounting perspective. Mm-hmm. It was a very interesting conversation. The first day I went to mm-hmm. the CFO and said, hey, I need you to put in a revenue line on my P&L because I have some revenue for you. Where do you want me to code it? And he was like, ah, uh, this has never happened before. So mm-hmm. that was part of the conversation. The other part we actually were working on was to white label our training. We worked in an industry that had a lot of organizations that were looking for this type of training. We were able to white label it and then license it out to our competition. we were able to mm-hmm. use it in their programs. Again, we invested the cost to build it, but we were able mm-hmm. to recoup the cost and make a profit by selling the content into the broader market. When mm. I took that business case, along with some other ideas that I had to our board, I was explicitly told in no uncertain terms to not move forward because HR's job was not to be strategic but my job was to make sure that everyone else did their jobs. Oh so to put the put that business case in my desk drawer yeah, and right. go back and write a policy. So that was an organization that up to that point had been very successful, very aligned and and had mm-hmm. to consider to be cutting edge. But when push came to shove, when we had transcended the traditional HR circumstance mm-hmm. and ready to graduate into a more strategic role, we weren't allowed to make move forward because the business wouldn't let us. So that's... That's one part of it. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's entirely the case because the inverse yeah, of that coin yeah. is the demand side. This is yeah. the HR responsibility to show up as people that should be in these conversations. So let's separate the people that don't have the skills or don't have the interest. And that would be, I would suggest, a significant portion of the pie. The yeah, remaining people who have an interest but may not have the skills or have the mm-hmm. skills but don't have the mandate, those individuals can go to their organizations and build business cases to say, this is why HR needs to be at the conversation table because stats around human resources, diversity and inclusion, talent, and how they drive business performance. Here's the impact of a workforce shift around engagement and what it would mean to the bottom line. It'll mean to risk, safety, profitability, Mm -hmm. pick pick Mm -hmm. wherever you want. We can build those business cases. The problem is, the system that is currently in place that is meant to develop HR leaders is so horribly broken, I can't even begin to explain right. to you.
1: Well, yeah. I the get professional
0: it. association in the United States, which is the, uh, oh, is it the governing body, but is the uh, Professional <laughs> Association of the United States, at this point still does not acknowledge that data and analytics is part of the HR practice. It is 2022. Wow. It is an organization of accountants masquerading as HR professionals. <laughs> and that is how the organization runs. Yeah. It is policy. Yeah. It is compliance. It is back office administration. It is personnel yeah. managers from, the, from my parents' generation and their parents' generation. Oh and God. those functions in their HR, while they still exist, are largely being automated or largely being transferred to finance. And where HR is growing are in all the areas in which that traditional view of HR needs to grow. Yeah. Talent, workplace psychology data and analytics, influence and persuasion. I mean, Carol, I actually think in the future, if we don't get this right, they're just going to blend marketing and HR. Because so it's exactly the same skill sets. Just give a marketing person a policy manual and say, just tell the organization how to do this. Because yeah. HR currently takes an overly administrative view for what is a strategic problem. And that's mm-hmm. on them. But I feel bad because if I say fix it, I know full well that Our professional association is going to help them. You go to most university programs at the undergraduate, graduate level. The HR module in my MBA, I literally wrote a letter to my university and said, you need to update this. This is information that's 50 years old. And that was what was offered in an MBA Mm. program. That was business students from around the world being exposed to this is is the HR module. And it was embarrassing how rudimentary and how unstrategic Mm. it was. We did a Myers-Briggs assessment <clears throat> in it, which is not even proven my science. Like it was just, it was not, um, and that's not their fault necessarily, except yeah. that the, the world is moving quickly. So is HR. And mm-hmm. part of the issue with supply is that there's presently, other than on-the-job experience with a really good leader, it's really hard to grow the things that we're talking about on this call today. People have to do it themselves right. or they have to find right. a really good leader. And that's right. a p- tall order at a time when people have a lot to worry about. So I just, I have a lot of empathy, but I acknowledge the the consequence of the situation, careless as you say, we have a lot of HR people who are struggling to find influence, struggling to perform, and organizations that are screaming for a high level of service and performance. But we are where we are. We have to fundamentally change the system that we're in.
1: Do you believe it's, you know, I mean, I always say the buck stops at the CEO founder, right? The CEO um, that that's the individual who doesn't understand, like it's living in a blind spot. They don't understand the value of a strategic partner in human resources. If they could find that
0: person. So here's what I think. I think smart. I think there are smart leaders who think that they could do the HR positions themselves um, because they can spot their talent. There are talent. people in
1: that business who think they can do my job and they can't.
0: Precisely. So there are people who <laughs> think they can be recruiters, they, think they can be HR leaders because they grew the business from zero to whatever state they got it to yep. when they brought that person on board. And they have a confirmation bias that their success became because they knew how to build relationships and grow a team. And, and mm-hmm. they, they forget the fact that they probably burned people out along the way or people left or they have five lawsuits or they, mm-hmm. they look at the bigger picture and they, as a consequence, forget or misremember some of the things that happened along the way, or Mm -hmm. they never believed it to begin with. Mm -hmm. And they have a view of people that is they're meant to be exploited for their benefit and the ends justify the means and they try and incent them through providing high salaries or big bonuses Mm -hmm. or fancy titles. um, And they hope that that will keep people loyal in absence of a culture And there's merit to those arguments insofar as they likely work in the short term, but I haven't seen them work in the long term unless people are intrinsically motivated. That is motivation that cannot be compelled from the outside. If they're intrinsically motivated, they will likely stay and support your organization. And if they're not, they'll look for the next best opportunity when it makes sense and then they'll move. Mm -hmm. So I think part of it, Carol, is just it's a confirmation bias. I think also part of it is The HR profession is a lot of work that people would rather not do themselves because it's uncomfortable, so it's easy to dismiss it. It's easy to dismiss the fact that you have to talk to somebody who's having a performance problem and that's somebody else's problem, or that somebody is having a hard day at home and they want to talk about it with their boss. That's a tough conversation to have. It's easy to pass that discomfort (coughs) onto somebody else and therefore denigrate the work because you couldn't be bothered to handle it yourself. So it's, it's, it's a complicated issue. But that being said, yes. I, what I, I have optimism. I'm seeing more and more founders with organizations that take a very talent-centric view that understand yes. the value of a, a professional mm-hmm. recruiter or a professional HR individual. Right. Um, that is shifting because they're starting to realize that allows them to grow and have competition in, mm-hmm. a, in a different way. In addition to how everything else has changed, how you ultimately right. have success in business has also changed. So... Yeah. You no longer want to build the biggest, most efficient widget possible. That mm-hmm. was what Walmart did. That was what Amazon did. But as the world shifts and it becomes more of a talent conversation, it becomes more three-dimensional. And therefore, yeah. you're seeing more founders and leaders recognize this and understand mm-hmm. that they have to do some personal work in addition to working on the business.
1: Yeah. Well, and I hear that. I mean, I hear that every time I interview a founder. You know, when 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 we talk about that. So you you have about twenty six employees. Tell me about the journey from you and your partner four years ago to where you are now and your talent personal talent strategy and where you've had challenges and made mistakes.
0: We had this conversation yesterday. It's very and by the way, it never stops, nor should it. Right. It I is agree. we are living in a in a very it's like volatile. A marriage. It's a, it, yeah. it is. You got to keep working on it. <laughs> got to keep, got to put in that, you got to put in that Doesn't effort. Doesn't mean you have
1: to put in time, you know, all day long, every day, nope. but you do need to put work into it.
0: But there's, with, with professional services, we're always caught in the same loop of when do we make investments in bringing in fixed cost, knowing yeah. that our contracts are rarely fixed cost contracts. That's and right. yet the expectations for most of our clients is for a start that is, I'll just sure. say, ambitious. So um, to fo- Tomorrow. We, can't, we can't afford to keep 40 employees on staff, but we might right. have to spike up to 45 employees for an engagement in the last three months. So how do we accordion our talent and move it sure. back and forward? Yeah. And that likely means we're working with a, a, a patchwork of people, a core staff, and which directors. has been in the organization mm-hmm. five days a week mm-hmm. that works remotely, but still is dedicating their t- work hours to us. And a combination of that plus freelancers, gig-based workers, contractors, Mm -hmm, consultants. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That, we don't have guarantees on their time and their availability. So we have to look at this in a three-dimension where we say, okay, we may have the demand for the service, but we don't have the supply to be able to staff and support it. We can't actually make this work right now. To deliver
1: what we've promised.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so that's always that tension point that we're playing with. Mm -hmm. And that's been essentially the story since the beginning. It's always like, do we... Do we make the decision to make the investment here? Do we pu- push the button on this? Um, and we've had some missteps along the way. We've brought some people on board and it hasn't worked mm-hmm. out. And in those cases, it's always a shared responsibility. Like we take as, mm-hmm. just as much culpability for a relationship no, that didn't work. As, as, because <laughs> we ultimately set the conditions or the lack of mm-hmm. conditions for success. And when something doesn't work out, that's partly on us. So it's um, it's been a really interesting transition. I mentioned earlier that some of those skills don't translate well from corporate to this. I think people mm-hmm. management actually does translate quite well. At the end of the day, a business is a collection of people. And we just try to make sure that we're honest with people, transparent with them, give them opportunities, mm-hmm. explain the limitations. And we find that goodwill more often than not lends it to our success. And we f- rarely find situations where it doesn't. Who generally is hiring you in the organization? Question. Generally speaking, it's a shared decision between one or more of the CFO, CHRO, CTO in the organization. Oh,
1: interesting. Well, why not the CEO? That's really interesting.
0: Most CEOs delegate the responsibility of digital transformation to their direct reports because they're even less comfortable than their direct reports to themselves. Sure. And to be fair, um, it does need to be a cross-functional project. So while there needs to be a sole executive sponsor, and usually the CEO would be the executive sponsor for the project, the the, the lieutenants, the ones who actually make the wheels work are their vice Mm. presidents or their directors. And in those cases, we'd interact with them. And to be fair, they're the ones we're working most closely with during the project. So for us, we Mm -hmm. actually prefer that. We prefer Mm -hmm. the opportunity to build the relationship during the prospect to sales process because it creates trust that we can then leverage when we're actually starting to pull levers. That's always the fun Mm -hmm. part, Carol. It's like we can sign a contract and say things are going to be great, but the moment the first thing breaks, something always breaks, it's how much trust and goodwill have you built up in that relationship that allow you to make sure that they understand that this was an expected fault. We're going to fix it. Everything's fine. um, We build contingencies in place. um, But there's a tendency in some companies that when things don't always work, that they want to point a finger. We try and make sure that people understand that perfection is actually a fallacy. We're talking about transformation. And what we will put in guardrails to make sure that nothing serious happens. People always get paid. We're not going to put in things in place that are against mm-hmm. the law. But if if there's a, a slight delay to the implementation of one system, because we want to make sure we get it right and it takes an extra five business days, we're doing so with the understanding that it might delay the, the timeline on a spreadsheet, but it's ultimately in yeah. the organization's best interest. So it's, it's having that goodwill to understand that we have the support when things don't always go according to plan and the trust that when it's all said and done, we'll achieve our goals. What's the competitive nature of your business? It, it's challenging. Um, it's challenging because with services, it's really hard to, to establish any differentiation. Mm-hmm. So not to get too business strategy, but when you have a product, you have a widget, you can say my widget is better than your widget, or my widget's cheaper right. than your widget. With services, it's such a subjective be- uh, body yeah. of work because every consultancy mm-hmm. would define the work differently. Mm-hmm. And every client wants to compensate the work differently. So I'll give you an example here. To me, uh, an engagement that makes the most amount of logical sense, going back to our conversation on incentives, would be one where we're able to cover our fixed costs as an organization so that Bento HR can afford to pay the people in the organization for their work. And then I'd be able to pay myself a salary for that work. But no, nothing additional beyond that. And that any upside beyond that, the margin as it were, would be dependent on our ability to achieve our goals as it's set out Mm -hmm. in the project. So if we say we're going to help you reduce turnover by 12% and that's going to save you a half a million dollars, I think it makes sense that we would share in that benefit. If we're able to help you release that, we would have Mm -hmm. that in place. Many organizations are uncomfortable with that. They'd rather have a fixed cost contract. The consequence Mm -hmm. of that is I have to, from a pricing structure, build in a buffer into my pricing. To make sure that I'm not actually over-investing resources mm-hmm. at the cost of my business. Because then it doesn't make sense mm-hmm. to do the work at all. And right. that being said, there's a, a bit of a lag with organizations around how they want to price certain projects. How they want to deal with certain things in that area. So it's a constant um, back and forth around establishing trust, establishing value, establishing what financial structures make sense. Ultimately, we'll, we'll take the client's lead and we're transparent about building the buffer in place and, and how that works mm-hmm. and give them the options. Uh, old habits die hard and financial structures alongside HR structures really haven't fundamentally changed in the last several years. And Mm -hmm. there's still a very much, um, as there should be, a conservative view around finances and costs in most organizations, again, given the big tickets that we're talking about with our projects. Yeah. How do you describe your culture? Evolving. Uh, (laughs) Playful. Uh, We talked about this yesterday. Our website just went through a remodel and everyone's very happy with it. But one thing we've lost in the remodel was a bit of the personality of the organization. Mm-hmm. So we're going to introduce the personality back into the organization. So we're working on the re- the refresh for that right now. Um, mm-hmm. It's an organization of people that like to work together. It just so happens that people want to pay us for it, which is really convenient. So it's a good place to start. Mm-hmm. It's a culture that's built on technology. I mm-hmm. live in Canada. My business is based in Seattle. I've seen my co-founder two times in the last four years in person, and I've seen my other colleagues zero times in the last four years in person. Um, Mm -hmm. It's an environment that only works and makes sense when you have a level of trust and and, and a depth of relationship that we've had to build digitally in a lot of cases. So um, it's evolving, it's technology enabled, it's fun. It's also really experimental. I mean, Carol, in 2020, we put on a a virtual reality conference with Microsoft because we wanted something cool to do. And Mm -hmm. we learned a ton having gone through that process that's going to benefit us, has benefited us already and will benefit us more in the future. It was uh, something that would not have been possible in most corporate structures to be able to pivot and pursue something that disparate from what you were going with, but at the Mm -hmm. time made a lot of sense for us. So I'm I'm really glad we have a company that is, that agile and that flexible to pursue mm-hmm. things that we think would be in great service to public. That's interesting.
1: What, if somebody were, were getting into your
0: industry, what advice would you give them? Don't. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <Don't>. um, <laughs> that the answer lies at the intersection of technology and people. Yeah. Which is why we're more successful because most organizations think it's one or the other or they try and source mm-hmm. the work with two different parties. The reality is it has to be viewed harmoniously or it doesn't actually connect. You can have the best technologies, the best systems, the best data, and pour money into it left, right, and center. But if you don't have a culture that aligns with it, it's not going to last. And you can have a great culture with people who are motivated and passionate and engaged, but they don't have the tools to do their job, they'll quickly become frustrated and leave. So it's a combination of looking at both. And... I think for anybody who's pursuing digital transformation, either from the IT side or the HR side or from a consulting lens, however they want to look at it, understand it's the symbiosis of people and technology that ultimately is digital transformation.
1: Yeah. What's your day-to-day look like
0: as a leader, Matt? Well, today it looks like unpacking. I'm doing a lot of unpacking these days. So I think I told you before we were on air, this is a brand new set, so I'm revealing it for the first time and just trying to get things, exactly, just trying to get things settled and leveled um, mm-hmm. on my average day, I'm a bit of a biohacker. I don't believe I can live forever, but I want to make sure I can enjoy the life that I do have. So, yeah. uh, I get up in the morning, I have a ritual and a routine that involves usually meditation. It usually involves right. uh, some form of yoga or exercise or stretching. Uh, I have mm-hmm. a good meal. Uh, I do some reading and then I get started with my day. Um, mm-hmm. as an entrepreneur, I sure Carol, you can appreciate this. I've learned to find the rhythm that works for me. And mm-hmm. it's not eight consecutive hours in the day tied to my desk. So
1: that's right, me too.
0: Yeah, I get up, I go for an hour long walk usually most days mm-hmm. in the middle of the day without my technology. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, or I'll go and work out for an hour. I'm lucky the yep. apartment building I'm in. There's a gym downstairs with saunas and exercise, and nice that keeps everything fresh. And um, yeah, I just or I'll hop on a Zoom call with a friend, or I'll go for coffee with a friend um, uh-huh. Fridays for me are my favorite days because I keep them completely open. They're my creative days. I get up in the morning and decide what am I going to do today when I open my eyes. Uh, and today I did a lot of writing next Friday. We might do, uh, some bookkeeping for all we know, but, uh, it's, it's, I like having the freedom and the flexibility of that. And, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. That's interesting. You know, I, I keep my Mondays open until after lunch because I feel like, you know, it's the beginning of the week I want to get to my desk and think, okay, what, you know, what do I want to do right now? What do I need to do? Or if somebody wants to get a hold of me, they actually can because I don't have back-to-back appointments like I've had all day today, right? I don't always do that on Friday. Sometimes I like to have my Friday afternoons available. Sure. Um, you know, and and I think you know, the the point is for any entrepreneur, and I believe more more people are starting or really realizing this now. The importance of taking care of your well-being because you can't take care of your well-being. You can't take care of any of your employees well-being. Right. And and, you know, it's funny, like this week, like almost every day that I went to the gym, I got there, I don't know, an hour and a half, two hours later than I normally go. And, and I, I, you know, I, you know, sometimes I feel a little guilty about that. Like, oh, I should really already be at my desk and, you know, and I shouldn't be out at this time, but you know, the reality is, and there are days, especially as we move into winter and you can understand this, I'm, I'm an outdoor gal, an outdoors gal. Um, you know, if we get lucky enough to have enough snow, I got 155, very hilly acres across the street from me. Very nice. I want to put my snowshoes on and take my, take my hound And we're going to go out and I'm going to do that, you know, when it's not, you know, five degrees outside, (laughs) maybe it's a little bit warmer, a little bit later in the day. And I'm going to go out and and take an hour or an hour and 15 minutes to, you know, just get out in sunshine and hike with my hound and snowshoe. right? Right. Um, and, and I think that that's really, really important that we really, You know, there, there's, you know, as you said early, there's, you know, we don't, we don't, you know, it's not a nine to five or nine to six or a 10 to seven or whatever. You have to work within the, you know, scope that works for you as long as you're getting your job done.
0: We have to shift from inputs into outputs. So we have to move into a world where leaders get comfortable with the idea of trusting that their employees will deliver. Mm -hmm. I mean... Carol, I was actually at a conference yesterday in Ottawa. i have been here for about a week and a half, having just moved across the country. But I want to take mm-hmm. the opportunity to go to an HR event, the first one that had been in our nation's capital I think three and a half years, and just wow. introduce myself to a new community of HR leaders that I'll be interacting with and hopefully seeing at future events. Mm-hmm. And one of the opportunities I had was to, to host a panel on what is new legislation here in Canada where employers over 25, so 25 employees and greater in the province of ontario which is where our nation's capital is located as is toronto Mm -hmm. companies over 25 employees have to have a policy around electronic monitoring of their employees which is to say if they're going to monitor their employees electronically in any way shape or form they have to disclose how where and why now in canada legislation is different generally speaking we don't have a the culture of work is different in Canada than it is in the United States. We would have far less, as a rule, electronic monitoring in Canada. Part of the reason yeah. why we want to put the policy in place, the, the, why the law came into effect, was to prevent proliferation of those policies in a way that was yeah. unethical. Um, so, But with the competition that we had was really around Microsoft, in early 2022, put out a work trend study surveyed Mm -hmm. 20,000 knowledge-based workers all around the world, different industries, but knowledge-based 20,000 people. And they asked 20,000 people, are you as or more productive than what you were pre-pandemic by working in a hybrid setting? 85% said, yeah, we are. Mm -hmm. When they surveyed those 20,000 people's bosses and said of those people, how much Mm -hmm. confidence do you have that your people are doing their full work? 87% 87 said they lacked confidence that their employees were being fully productive. Wow! So we have a complete disconnect between what employees think is actually happening and what managers think might be actually happening. This is a global study of knowledge-based workers across industry. So that being said, part of the shift there needs to go from inputs into outputs. At the end of the day, Carol, to your point, if you want to go for a three-hour snowshoe, but get up at four o'clock in the morning and put in two hours and then take a three-hour snowshoe or however you want to structure your day, your week, your month, but you hit your objectives, you satisfy your client expectations, you satisfy your employee expectations, and you meet all your personal Mm -hmm. goals, who really cares how you do it, where you do it, when you do it, or Mm -hmm. why you do it? Just do it. Mm -hmm. And that's the shift we have to make as leaders is if we establish clear goals up front, And expectations around quality and timing and cadence, Mm -hmm. and we provide coaching and tools, Mm -hmm. that's performance Mm -hmm. management, then worry about the output. Don't worry about if somebody's at their desk early, because the fact that Bob is there for 13 hours a day and Rich is there for eight doesn't mean Bob is more competent or more dedicated. That's exactly right. He may actually be more inefficient. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, have got employees working for me all over the world and, you know, I don't micromanage them. I, you know, I have, you know, a weekly or an every other week call with some of them. Some of them I talk to more often. It just depends on what they're doing for me. And, you know, the reality is, is I expect them to just be doing the job that I'm paying them to do. Absolutely. Right. And, you know, when we have those check-ins once a week or twice a month, and, you know, if, and if there's anything that comes up in the meantime, we talk sooner. But you know, I mean, I'm not in the business of you know wanting to micromanage anyone. I don't have the, I just don't have the interest in that.
0: It doesn't work either. Like we go back to work. The science is clear. So yeah, there's a clear link between intrinsic motivation. I mentioned this term earlier. Intrinsic yep. motivation is a motivation that comes from within. It's not carrot and yeah. stick. You have to personally mm-hmm. will it. Right. Intrinsic yeah. motivation links to discretionary effort. That is effort that goes beyond what is absolutely required to keep your job. There's many people right now that are just punching a clock and doing what's required, keeping their head down to keep their job. Discretionary efforts when you go above and beyond because you like your boss, you like your coworkers, you Mm -hmm. want to like your company, whatever it is, you do more than you have to because you want to. And organizational performance. Imagine the power, Carol, if everyone in the company was intrinsically motivated and gave you discretionary effort That's how a startup becomes a unicorn. And when people are giving more of their time because they want to, because they see they're part of the success. If you don't trust people, they don't want to give any more than they absolutely have to. So you're basically putting a cap on your organization's success. You're putting a huge ceiling on your innovation, on your diversity and inclusion, and ultimately your company's performance. And at some point, finance people, boards of directors, Wall Street is going to wake to the reality that even though it may not come second nature to some leaders, operating in a way that is ethical is good business and operating in a way that is unethical is bad business. And the scorecard, the report current of success will be more than just the bottom line number, but we'll look at a broader scorecard of metrics because anyone can have a good quarter. Anyone can have a good year. But if you burn bridges all the way to get to that point and have a terrible second quarter, second year, third year, fourth year, and burn the business into the ground, yep. that wasn't yep. successful. That's called manipulation and fraud. So (laughs) the reality is we have to take a bit of a longer term view and we have to be willing to be patient with leaders who are going to go through this transition because there are many leaders that do want to make this transition, are learning about themselves, are growing and are on the right path to becoming what I would suggest is the new template for what leadership will be into the future.
1: Yeah. Well, amen to that, brother. Uh, Is there anything that uh, I have not asked you that you wanted to uh, talk about before we sign off here?
0: No, it's always a pleasure to chat. Well, I
1: agree. So uh, with that said, Matt Burns, uh, founder and CEO of Bento HR, a pleasure as always. Like I said, you're a kindred spirit. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Authentically Successful. If you are a successful founder or CEO who would like to be on this program, Please visit verticalelevation.com slash podcast slash apply. If you learned something from this interview and it made a difference, please share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend. And if you know of someone who would be a great guest, tag them on LinkedIn or Twitter to let them know about the show and include the hashtag Authentically Successful.